cutting through the clutter. This is the Misty Winston Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back, everybody, to the Misty Winston Show here on TNT Radio. I appreciate you tuning in today. Uh, Joining us for our third and final hour of today's show is Liam McCollum. Uh, Liam is a student at the University of Montana. He's studying philosophy and journalism. He's a Libertarian Party Mises Caucus organizer in Montana, a Hazlitt Fellow with the Foundation for Economic Education, and the host of his own show called The Liam McCollum Show, which you can uh, find on Odyssey, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Uh, So, hey, Liam, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. It's good to talk to you. I was on your show a while ago, but it's been a while, so it's good to speak to you again. Um, Okay, so do you want to just start, I guess, for our audience who is uh, perhaps not familiar with you, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in the Libertarian Party? Yeah, of course. I'm just a kid from Montana who started a podcast about two years ago, as many Libertarians did. It's kind of become somewhat of a meme uh, about all the libertarian podcasts <laughs> out there. But I will say I was kind of ahead of the curve there. I, I kind of had been thinking about doing it for a few years and I finally decided to jump in and I first started out interviewing people who I guess you could say were acceptable to the regime. So I was like interviewing people like Greg Miller. He, he won a Pulitzer prize. Um, he, he works for the New York times. He was reporting on, on the Snowden case and everything like that. And then I couldn't help myself. I started to interview more um, people that that I really looked up to uh, with the Mises Institute. And um, I, I found people like Reed Coverdale, uh, Dave Smith, Scott Horton, who, who you have had on the show. And then I just started to lean into my own beliefs. Um, I think I had originally planned on staying pretty neutral, um, but I, I couldn't help myself. And that led me to just getting in contact with people like Michael Heiss, Uh, He is the organizer of the Mises Caucus at the national level, and I started organizing here in Montana. Montana is already pretty libertarian. Um, We have about 80 people on our list who we try to remain in contact with, but uh, the party has doubled in size here in Montana um, over the last two years, and that's been attributed to the Mises Caucus and um, their organizing here. So I'm, I'm very happy. And um, I'm, I'm excited to see where, where the party goes. I, I saw that the GOP just pulled out of the uh, national debates yesterday. And I think that's a huge sign for third parties. I think that that's, that's great um, to totally just drop out of the, the politically endorsed um, debate format. I think that that's just amazing. So I'm really excited to see what happens in the party. Yeah, I actually I think that uh, I saw one of your tweets where you were talking about the debates and I hate the debate format. I think it's terrible. Um, It's you know, it's basically designed for like, you know, the quick one liners, the sound bites, Um, you know, candidates aren't given an opportunity to really flesh out any of their policies. Uh, So it's really it really is just meant for like those quick little quips uh, that you can get. It's like, you know, who who can get the best one liner of the night? You know what I mean? The zinger. Um, And that really isn't (laughs) that doesn't help anybody. I mean, that really doesn't help educate anybody on, on, on the campaign or the, the politician or the positions, policies, any of that stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting. I think we need to rethink the uh, debate situation in, entirely. Um, uh, yeah, and, so and everyone, everyone knows that like the, the most interesting people are like Andrew Yang, Ron Paul, uh, Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard. I think that those are the people that stand out and, and they're always the ones who, you know, only get like two minutes uh, yes. to actually say anything. So I think if, if we kind of looked more towards a longer form conversational type 
platform, I think that that would be great. Like if, if we had a longer form podcast or something like that, where they actually had to sit down and be confronted about their ideas rather than just yes. have these one-liners, like you said, I think that uh, people, people are really ready for something like that. Let's let Joe Rogan host it. <laughs> right. I mean, I honestly, I mean, I know he gets, yeah, he gets a lot of crap, but honestly, he's a great, uh, he, I don't even really want to call him an interviewer because um, he doesn't really interview people. He just has conversations with people. And I think that that's what makes him so effective is that he gets people, he makes people comfortable. Um, and so he's able to get from people more than perhaps they would, uh, you know, divulge to other in another format. You know what I'm saying? Um, because he's just so good at putting people at ease and they're, they just open up a little bit more. Um, and I think that's what makes him so effective. So as much crap as he gets, I would be honestly, I would be open to him. I mean, I don't know if he's as um, uh, up on uh, all of the things that he would need to be up on. But I mean, it, it, he would I think he would still be an interesting choice, uh, at least to, um, you know, I think all candidates should have to be forced to go on like a longer form uh, format podcast like that because you can't hide then you know what I mean it's it's not easy to hide behind platitudes and talking points when you're sitting down with somebody for like two hours you know you it's that's yeah. a lot more difficult so yeah exactly and there was there was the scandal with like Hillary Clinton getting all of the questions beforehand and everything and I think yes. people can kind of see through like the I mean it, it feels very corporate like it feels like there's just I, I don't know it like anything on cable news just feels fake. And I think that that's yes. why Joe Rogan is getting so many listeners. I mean, 11 million listeners per episode. Like there's a reason for that. Yeah, that's intense. I I mean, honestly, I, it's well-deserved. Again, like I said, he is, um, I don't always watch his show. I'm not like a huge Joe Rogan fan, but if he has somebody on that I'm interested in or that, you know, I think is a good, uh, whatever, um, I'll, I'll tune in. And every, I mean, every time he, I think he does a great job. Um, he asks interesting questions. And the thing I, I think I like about him most is that he's, uh, I think he knows that he doesn't know it all. And he always asks, like, he's okay to ask questions and be curious. And I like that very much about him. So yeah, yeah, I think it would be, you're right. Corporate media is so fake and it's so manufactured. Um, and I think people are hungry for authenticity at this point. You know what I mean? Like it, it all feels very phony. Uh, like all of politics feels very phony at this point. Um, so I think people are kind of hungry for something that's more substantive, um, which, you know, it, I think would be an excellent choice. If we really want to have an educated voting population, uh, then we need to, and if we really want to hold politicians to account, which we should, um, then we should, you know, confront them on their policies and make them explain themselves, you know, and, and I don't think that that should be too much to ask. Um, so yeah, that's, I mean, I think that would be super interesting. And I know you used to be a Trump supporter and then you kind yeah. of made the transition to being a libertarian. Talk about that a little bit. Cause I always, I always, uh, like, I love the, the, like hearing people's uh, journeys, like their transition, how they end up, where they're at, all of that stuff. So talk a little bit about how you found yourself, you know, moving into libertarianism from being a Trump supporter. Yeah. So I, I grew up in a very conservative household, Christian household, and I'm, I'm still very Christian. And I, I'd say that I have a lot of traditional values, but, um, you know, I, I think that I was propagandized like most people into the two party system. Um, I really, I thought that Trump really stood out just because, and I think everyone kind of, everyone who was against the empire can kind of recognize that there, there really is a reason that they went against him. And there was something appealing about that at the time. And um, just so you know, I, I was like 16 when he was elected. I was, I was like a junior in high school. I think I, 
I, I must have been a junior in high school. So I, I was very young, didn't really know much about politics. It was it was kind of just fun for me. And, and to right. see like the corporate press go out against him, it really felt like I was winning, if that makes sense. sense. It's like it was the end of history when Trump won. It felt like, you know, we had finally won. We had beat the other side. It was like a game. Um, and then I, I had kind of latched on to his non-interventionist um, messaging. He, he ran on being somewhat of a, you know, American first, America first foreign policy where we're just going to focus on the economy here. And um, because of that, when he, when he um, ordered the airstrikes on Syria, I think it was 59 missiles from the Mediterranean Sea in retaliation for um, one of their gas attacks. Uh, I, it kind of woke me up a little bit, but there was a, there was a part of me who was like really into the military still, you know, like, like guns and, and bombs going off. Like I still got really excited about that just from being propagandized. Um, and then a week later, it was April 13th, 2017. Um, the Moab was dropped on Afghanistan and it wasn't necessarily the bomb and, and seeing the video that woke me up to it. it. It was everything that came after that really exposed me to how corrupt the military industrial complex was. Um, so for instance, Donald Trump, it's reported that he didn't even know about the bomb until after it was dropped. I think that was a senior administration official who said that. And, and it was pretty clear that like Trump had a somewhat, liberal policy when it came to foreign policy. He let his administration um, kind of do whatever they want. And and uh, it was reported that a lot of generals were very happy with uh, Trump's foreign policy. And um, th there's this quote where someone says that Mr. Matt Mattis was essentially like saying that you don't even have to ask to uh, drop the Moab. We didn't even have to get permission. Um, and, and I'm going to just read this quote here. It says, technically, there's no piece of paper that says you have to ask the president to drop a Moab. But last year, this time, the way things were meant is I'm going to drop a Moab. I better let the White House know. And, and I was going through um, a, a civics course at that time with a very libertarian teacher. And I, I'm very lucky because um, not a lot of people even go through a civics course in high school anymore, yeah. but I, I had a very libertarian non-interventionist teacher who taught me about the constitution, article one, section eight, and Congress's powers to declare war, the war powers resolution, the AUMFs. And once I found out that a, a president that, you know, I had identified with and had supported and would have voted for if I could have um, kind of had this this administration and this foreign policy that that wasn't checked it i think that kind of woke me up um and and then there was kind of this this question of uh what the bomb even accomplished um and and it's not clear that it accomplished much and the the pentagon didn't even really seem to have any goal with it other than to send a strong message because at this time uh, if I remember correctly, there was a lot of um, uh, it, there was a lot of concern about North Korea and they had 
launched a few missiles into the sea, I think, um, if, if I have the timeline correct. And and it was seen as kind of just Donald Trump being a strong president. And I, I remember Reed Coverdale actually points this out uh, a lot. He says that after the Syrian airstrike um, that I had mentioned earlier, a lot of the, the media started fawning over Trump. And yes. they, they said that he was he had finally become presidential. And to <laughs> yeah. me, to me, it's like a lot of people get excited when there's bipartisanship and, and when media and the Democrats and Republicans agree. But I think that's actually when it's the worst. Um, yes. I I believed in checks and balances and I don't like when a lot happens quickly. I'm, I'm very cautious of that. And uh, and and we saw a lot of a lot of what happens when the government tries to do things quickly with with the pandemic and um, before we have any evidence and stuff like that. And I just I was very cautious of this and it, and it really woke me up. Um, and like I said, I the idea that Donald Trump was supposed to be a non-interventionist, we all know, like, I think Obama ran on pulling out of Iraq. Uh, even Bush ran on being a non-interventionist. And then, of course, 9-11 happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was the the former Afghan president, um, Hamid Karzai. He, he had said that this wasn't the war on terror. This was um, an inhuman and, and most brutal use of our country as a testing ground for for weapons. And yes, um, and I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, and and Hamid Karzai had been an ally of the U.S. And, and he was now saying that. So there was a whole whole bunch that kind of led up to this. The. Um, I, I realized that, and it, it is kind of funny because a lot of it wasn't technical. I wasn't very into foreign policy or anything. What really woke me up to Republicans and the empire was more theoretical. I, I had, um, you know, I, my level of politics at this time, like political understanding was that Republicans were in favor of small government and, and just these platitudes that you had heard. And yeah. I, I realized that with their foreign policy, they really did not care about small government. And, and then after that, once I started to look into the foreign policy, I realized that they didn't even accomplish small government at home and they were in favor of expanding it here, the police state. Um, and I mean, we, we know about, I mean, Donald Trump oversaw the lockdowns and, um, the omnibus bills and the spending that went to all of the companies and, you know, only sending out a thousand dollar checks to civilians. And so, yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> since then it's, it's been just this, it, it, there was a pretty slow journey to libertarianism, but um, I, I found people like Ron Paul and I've, I've kind of been immersed in this community now um, with Reed Coverdale and Scott and having you on the show. I know you're a leftist, but I've, I'm trying to interview people who are more like-minded and, and really get involved and try to make some changes at the local level too, here in the party. Um, we're having Scott Horton here next week to give a talk on, on Tuesday. So I'm trying to like make these connections and try to, um, affect change locally too. Yeah, no. And I think I appreciate you having me on, on your show. I, um, I mean, I often get lumped in as a leftist. I hate labels, frankly, it drives me nuts a little bit because I feel like it's always just labels are always just kind of used to like just divide people. You know what I mean? Like, right. oh, here's your team. Here's your box. This is where you fit. Um, but I don't I mean, yes, I have some leftist ideals I have, but I don't really I mean, I don't really 
like to label myself as that. Um, but it is, um, I, I like to talk to people, all, all kinds of people. Like I am a big uh, advocate for speaking to people that you don't agree with on everything because I feel like we do have a lot of commonalities. Um, and so even if we have disagreements and we have things that we don't, um, you know, necessarily, you know, 100% are cohesive on, I think it's still uh, having those conversations, I think, and reaching out across political ideologies is always going to be helpful because frankly, when it comes down to it, those disagreements aren't don't even matter until we deal with the system. Um, and yeah. that's really where we all have to kind of come together. Um, yeah, I, so, I was looking at oh. some photos the other day of Occupy Wall Street and um, you'll, you'll see people holding up signs that are, you know, they're pretty left leaning, you, you can tell. But then in the crowd, you'll see a few and the Fed signs. Yeah. And I think that that is really telling. Um, you know, it, it used to be the conversation about we are the 99% and there was the Tea Party movement. There was the Occupy movement that kind of came up around the same time. And now there's almost no talk of that, you know, the kind of bottom up movements that, that are possible and that we've seen in the past. There really isn't that much talk of it because we're so immersed in identity politics and and yes. just trying to divide people. And And I think this is actually... I think Dave Smith makes this argument that it's it's it actually seems to be somewhat of a corporate strategy to divide. Um, yes. And I, I think that that's that's very, very true. Yeah, I 100 percent agree with that. I think it's entirely intentional um, because they know that if we all come together, then they're in real trouble. And so there's a, a very concentrated effort to keep us arguing amongst ourselves so that we don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. And so yeah. it, you're right. There's I mean, there are a lot of things that um, we all agree on. Um, and it's uh, it's unfortunate that and it's because it is a very intentional thing that there, those conversations aren't being had anymore. We have been systematic systematically beat down. Um, and every time a, a movement like Occupy crops up, they uh, destroy it. And, you know, Barack Obama allows cops to brutalize those protesters. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, and then it, it diminishes the movement. And it, it it really does just kind of, I think uh, the, the American populace has allowed itself to get beaten down so hard that people are just, um, they don't even know how to begin. They don't even know how to start to fight back. They don't even know what, like where to go. Uh, and then, you you add on that that everybody um you know has to work two or three jobs and they're tired and they're they, you know they got to take their kid to soccer practice and mow their grass and all that stuff it's really hard for people to even um educate themselves about what's actually happening and then we have a mainstream media that is lying to everybody uh on a regular basis and is completely uh you know uh, owned and operated by corporations and is uh nothing but state-run propaganda um and it's uh, it's a really a recipe for disaster um you know, and it's, it, I don't know how we get those movements uh, revitalized. I mean, we're, we've been trying to revitalize the anti-war movement um, and it's, it's really pulling teeth to even get people out in the streets, to get people to, to, to get involved, to get active. Uh, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate. I don't know how, how we get back to, um, you know, having those strong on the ground movements, those strong grassroots movements again, um, that, that go across political ideologies, because again, these are things that we can all agree on. I mean, most people <laughs> agree on ending wars. That should be kind of a no-brainer. I don't think anybody really likes war. 
Um, and so, you know, if we can revitalize the, the, the anti-war movement, I think that would be a good start, especially now, given that, you know, we're the Russia, Ukraine, and, you know, we've got, uh, uh, airships or air, airship carriers off the coast of Korea and we're trying to start stuff with China and we're I mean it's there's all kinds of stuff going on all over the place we need an anti-war movement now more than ever really um and yeah. it's you know you were talking earlier about how uh, the Moab and all of that stuff. And I feel like in this country, I talked about this, Kyle Anzalo, and you may be familiar with him. He writes for anti, uh, anti-war.com and the Libertarian Institute. Um, yeah, he's but great. I was talking to him. Yeah, I love him. He's actually going to be a regular guest on the show. He's going to be on every Monday at three. Um, he, I awesome. swear he writes like 104 articles a week. <laughs> he, he's like sure constantly he writing something. He's uh, like, I don't know how he does it. Uh, but it, we were talking about it. And I think culturally in this country, we see military force as strength. And that's not how we should see things. We should really, I mean, really, we should be seeing somebody who seeks diplomacy and seeks peace as strength. And I mean, you can see it when, you know, a presidential approval, a presidential approval rating is down. If you start a war, your approval rating goes up. And that's really kind of sick. It's kind of twisted, you know? Yeah. And I know Scott, and I think Kyle has talked about this before too. Scott Horton and and Kyle Anzalone have talked about the fact that diplomacy hasn't been number one, the number one strategy here. Um, I I know that most people say, well, Putin doesn't want to meet and uh, Lavrov doesn't want to meet. And even if that were the case, like Blinken and Biden should be out there like in the media saying that they need to meet with them like that, that should be the biggest talking point that Lavrov isn't sitting down with us. If it really is the case that they're the ones who don't want to be diplomatic, like that should be the biggest narrative that they're unwilling to sit down and negotiate. Um, But that's not, that's not the narrative right now. We're, we're continuing to send um, weapons over there. And actually I I think it was yesterday uh, antiwar.com reported that, um, Russia is now officially warning the U.S. to stop arming Ukraine. And this is the first yeah. time that they've they've called out the U.S. and said that um, our our shipments are actually targets. And, and this is very concerning because um, they also reported that uh, Biden or Kamala might be um, heading to Ukraine soon. They're saying that a senior official is is most likely to be attending Ukraine oh in Kiev. And, and Russia said that um, they would strike Kiev if if they continue to send weapons through there. So <laughs> that just sounds like a disaster. And it almost like everything that the United States seems to be doing, like is almost for the intended purpose of escalation. And it's very yes. concerning. Yes. I mean, if I'm come on, this has been um, this whole conflict has been a product of our creation. I mean, we have uh, every step of the way we have instigated and escalated this. There have been multiple, uh, you know, instances where we have had opportunity to uh, establish diplomacy and, you know, make moves that would calm things down. And instead, every step that we take is uh, in an effort. It almost seems as if it's in an effort to escalate. You're right. Um, You know, we there's been lots of things that we could have done over the course of, I mean, not even just the past couple of months. But over the like the past eight years, uh, things that we could have done or not done 
um, that would have uh, aided in calming the situation down rather than, uh, you know, getting us to the point where we're at now. Um, but again, I think that that's the point. I think that in the United States, it's, you know, we see military force as a sign of strength. And so that's, you know, kind of our go to. It's, you know, we want to be seen as like the big bad. And really, we're just the bully of the world. Um, and it's, it, it, you're right. This, it, it's like a constant. Um, kind of uh, just just constant escalation. It doesn't matter what the situation is. Um, we're seeing it in Ukraine. We're seeing it with China. We're seeing it with Korea. Uh, we see it with Syria. It's like everywhere we go, um, we're constantly trying to make things worse than they need to be. Um, you know, it's just, it, it is just the way, again, culturally that we are in this country. And it's, I don't know how we combat against that because it's kind of, um, uh, it's kind of uh, forced upon us from birth. Like that's we see uh, in the military is like this glorified institution and, you know, military force is good. I mean, we have Brian Williams on national television getting excited about the beauty of bombs being launched. And that's just <laughs> gross. I mean, when those bombs land, people die. And that's something that we celebrate on national TV and mainstream media. And that's it's really sick culturally that we see it that way. Um, it, it, we should always be working towards diplomacy in these situations as much as humanly possible. Uh, and it's never the case. Um, and I, I don't know. It's just it's a really sick and twisted way that we do things here and have always really. Um, but we need to take just a quick break, uh, just a couple of minutes, and we'll be right back with uh, more from Liam here on TNT Radio. The Common Housefly. Caught in the clutches of the spider's web. Every move it makes just makes matters worse. Then, dinner time. Feast on the captivating stories, videos, and helpful information on our website. Whoa. Dinner's ready. Oh, man. Escape is futile. Just one more video. Get stuck in our web. TNTradio.live. Mama, what does the chicken say? Uh, dog. Cat. Giraffe. Giraffe, really? Giraffe. Uh, giraffe. You're not going to get it all right. Just make sure you nail the big stuff, like making sure your kids are buckled correctly in the right seat for their age and size. Get it right. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you prevent wildfires. Dude, I've got this. I've been camping since I was five years old. But I am a camping influencer. You know what? I'll bet you five bucks. Assistant Smokey, what is the best way to put out a campfire? To put out a campfire, drown with water, stir, drown again. Then make sure the fire is out cold by feeling with the back of your hand. Wait, really? I'll take the five bucks. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Okay, we are back, everybody, here on TNT Radio. I'm Misty Winston. I am joined this hour by Liam McCullough, McCollum, who is a, a huge part of the libertarian movement. Um, really quickly, before we jump into it again, I do just want to remind everybody that April 20th is the next important court date in the Julian Assange case. Um, and my dear friend Emmy in London is organizing a protest outside of Westminster Magistrates Court, which is at 181 Marlbone Road in London. Um, that is the, the court is essentially going to sign the extradition and it will go off to Pretty Patel 
L4 um, approval. So if you are in the London area and you can make it out to that protest, please do. Um, again, that's uh, April 20th. Um, and I think it's going to be at from 9 a.m. until 1030. So uh, we need people in the streets out there making noise. So please do that if you are in London or anywhere near London and can make it out. Um, okay, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, you mentioned earlier that the Libertarian Party is growing in Montana. I think it's been, I mean, I've seen, uh, I've been kind of eyeballing the the Liberty Movement. Um, you know, I'm friends with Reed Coverdale. I'm friends with Magnus. And I've had Scott Horton on my show. And I, so I've been kind of, uh, you know, I friends with Kyle Anzalone. He's been on my show multiple times. Um, and so I've been kind of monitoring it, I guess, sort of from the outside. Um, but it seems like it's been growing uh, fairly significantly over the past, I don't know, maybe six years or so. I think Gary Johnson had a big, uh, a big part in that. Uh, I think he was one of the, he was really one of the first libertarian candidates that I was like, oh, okay. Um, uh, you know, other than Ron Paul. Um, so, uh, you know, what, what, what is the, uh, what's the party up to these days? I know that Dave Smith has become quite uh, a popular figure in the movement. Is he going to likely be, uh, the presidential candidate, do you think in 2024 for the libertarian party? Well, well, first about uh, your point on uh, Johnson, I, I think really what happened there is actually just that the other candidates were so terrible that people were forced <laughs> to kind of look at the Libertarian Party because as as a libertarian and a small L libertarian, as it has been called, um, I'm, I'm very philosophically libertarian, but I kind of refused to join the party before kind of this the last two years and before Dave Smith really started to get involved in the party. And, and part of that is because the philosophy and the messaging from the party wasn't very strong. Um, and, and what I've kind of been saying, because a lot, a lot of people take that to be very, a very negative thing. And, and we kind of like resent the libertarian party because of that and everyone who came before, but I think that they've, they've really kind of built something. And the fact that people who, you know, weren't as strong on messaging, like, Johnson and um, Jorgensen got any press at all says so much. Um, yeah. Uh, Jorgensen, for instance, like she toured the country, she came to Montana, but she didn't really have any big press thing. Like she didn't have any big interviews that would have given her press. She was endorsed by Jorgen or Joe Rogan. Like after the fact, he, he later said that he voted for Jorgensen, but like he, he never announced it before to like, really pump up the numbers for her. But, um, the, the fact that, that I run into people just, you know, in Missoula where I, where I live who say, yeah, I voted for Jorgensen. And they just bring that up without me saying that I am a libertarian or any, anything. I think that says a lot. And it really shows us what kind of moment this is that if we are able to get someone like Dave Smith or, um, a, a big name libertarian, out there who who has connections who who can go on joe rogan or who can go on fox news i think that we can really make some some waves i don't think that we could necessarily win but i think that we won't get the four percent that we usually do i mean the libertarian party has been kind of their, their goal has been to uh stick with four percent um every presidential election and to get ballot access and um, I, th I think a better strategy is messaging. And I know that that's what Dave Smith has been saying. He, he doesn't necessarily think that we, we can win. Um, I don't want to speak for him, but he, he has seemed, seemed to say that like his, his goal, if he were to run for president would be to wake people up. And I also think that a, a priority of his would be to 
reshape the libertarian message so that it is associated with being anti-war because the fact that it isn't is a shame. Um, Bill Weld ran as the vice president <laughs> uh, candidate and, and he ended up endorsing Hillary Clinton afterwards. And yeah. I just think that that's absolutely terrible. I mean, if, if you know anything about the libertarian tradition, Murray Rothbard, Mises, Ron Paul, um, yeah, just all, all of those names. It's, it's, it's really, I think, unfortunate that that has been associated with really bad messaging in the past. Like, like you'll hear people say, um, uh, if, if I mention that I'm a libertarian, they think of like people taking off their shirt on the debate stage or something like that. Like that's, that's a common thing or, or Gary Johnson's Aleppo moment where he, yeah. he says, what's Aleppo. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I, if, if we had a Dave Smith run, I think that the entire um, image of the party would change. I, I think that they would, they would still say that we're, we're terrible. I think that we would probably get called all the worst things that they call anyone they don't like. Um, but I think that it would, it would radically change, um, the, the entire image of the party. I mean, Dave Smith knows where Aleppo is. He also is on the other side of the phone with Scott Horton all the time. So I think that, you know, he, he hasn't announced, and I know he's, he's said that, um, he's still thinking about it, but I, I think he's going to, and I I'd be really excited and I, I would support him if he did. I think he should. I think you're right. I think it would be um, uh, it, it, at least it would be, it would energize the party, the movement. Um, I mean, I'm not a libertarian, so I'm, I don't mean to speak for libertarians, but he is a very I've been paying attention to him. He's a very charismatic speaker. Um, he's very intelligent. He knows what he's talking about. He's very good at, um, you know, kind of invigorating people and getting his message across. Um, so I think that it would be really beneficial to the party if he did it. So Dave Smith, if you're listening, you should do it. Um, I think Scott Horton will probably talk him into it. I think Scott's pretty persuasive. So I think that he'll be able to talk him into it. But I think you're right. You're not going to win. Listen, I'm, I'm a, I'm pretty anti-electoral politics myself. Um, I feel like it's, you're never going to get the kind of change that we need from electoral politics because the system is broken. Um, so you're not going to win because uh, they're going to make sure of that. They, I mean, we, we don't have fair elections. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> they, we're not. You can't even get a fair election. So uh, even if you were to get, you know, great numbers, or even if you were to even potentially be able to win, they would make sure that you didn't. Um, you know. So, uh, it, but I think it would be good for the movement. I think that it would definitely be good for getting the message out, uh, for bringing new people into the party. Um, so, I mean, I, I definitely think it would be a worthwhile venture. And that's coming from somebody who's not, I don't do electoral politics at all. <laughs> um, but I do think that, it, it, you know, it, especially with somebody like Dave Smith, because I have been watching him for a while and he is a really good speaker. I mean, he's really good at um, pulling people in of getting and that's the big thing is getting your message across. I mean, you just spoke about Joe Jorgensen. No offense to Joe Jorgensen. I don't know her. Maybe she's a lovely person, but she's so boring and uninspired. Like, like she didn't get any press. Like nobody knew who she was. Um, you know, I would talk to people uh, and they had no idea who the libertarian candidate even was in 2020. You know what I mean? They had no yeah. idea who was even running. So that's not good. Yeah. And I got, thing. I got in the party to, um, support Jacob Hornberger who, who was running under the Mises caucus. And, um, because I had joined the party, I figured that I would support Jorgensen anyway. I actually interviewed her on my show earlier on and I, you know, I, I really advocated for her. Um, and I think that it, 
it, it really is that, that it, it was just boring. And I don't think that it's any fault of her own. I think that she has a lot of, and I, I hate to assume this, but I, I just think that she has a lot of people and, and people managing her campaign who do like the social media and everything like that. And I think everything bad about that came was probably about that campaign was probably a attributed to social media mistakes and, and management mistakes. But I, I think that the, the messaging wasn't strong either. And I think that that would, it would be absolutely different if, if Dave Smith were to run. Oh, for sure. And I mean, also you're right because Dave Smith has, um, you know, kind of, I mean, he kind of has that star quality thing, but he also has connections. He's been on Joe Rogan before he can use uh, that kind of thing to, uh, you know, garner support and to be able to talk to people. Cause like you said, Joe Rogan gets 11 million, 11 million <laughs> listeners every episode. Um, that's intense. Uh, that's a lot of people that you can reach and that I know that he's already been able to reach. I know that he's already been able to, um, have those conversations with Joe Rogan. And I mean, I've, uh, I can tell you that uh, I've had leftists uh, who uh, have come up to me and talked about how, oh my gosh, did you see that guy, Dave Smith on Joe Rogan? He talked about this and he talked about that and they were all excited about it. And, um, you know, so I think that he's, he has the potential to be able to bring people in um, from across the ideology, uh, you know what I mean? From across the spectrum, um, because he is speaking to things that I think a lot of people agree on. Um, So, I mean, and and for, for people who haven't listened to it yet, they should go back and listen to his most recent appearance on Joe Rogan show, because I think that this one got around 11 million views. Um, I, I don't know how to find the stats for that, but uh, there, there's a clip that went trending on YouTube for a bit uh, where he was talking about the war on, war in Yemen and the yeah. genocide in Yemen. And um, thank God, but there's, there's a ceasefire right now, um, which is the greatest news in, in a really long time. Um, yeah. But he, he kind of, I think he really woke a lot of people up to that. I mean, I didn't even know about the war in Yemen until I discovered Scott Horan a couple of years ago. So um, I, I think that it's very important that we have voices out there like that. And and Scott actually made this point at, um, I think it was the Texas Libertarian Convention a couple of weeks ago. He said, that's probably the most viral clip, um, the war, like, or uh, viral content about the war on Yemen that has ever existed. Because I mean, yes. when has anyone ever had a platform with 11 million viewers and, and they're talking about Yemen on there? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that was, the, I think that was the clip that kind of went viral period. Um, I think mm-hmm. that was the clip that a lot of leftists because Yemen does not get any coverage. The mainstream media does not talk about Yemen at all. None, zero. Um, so the idea that there's this guy on Joe Rogan getting 11 million listeners um, and he's talking about Yemen was like, I mean, astounding. Like Nobody could believe that this was happening. And he did such a great job and he was able to very succinctly, um, you know, put together uh, what what is actually happening in Yemen. And he was able to describe it in a way um, that I think most people could understand because Yemen, I mean, it is like it, this is an ongoing crisis, um, and, but it is it doesn't get any coverage. And so the idea that he was able to um, talk about it to such a massive audience was huge. Um, and, you know, it's uh, we, we do. I mean, even despite the fact that I'm not a libertarian, I will support that every day of the week. I don't care who you are. If you go on s- somewhere and you get um, in, in a 
conversation started about Yemen, then I support that every time. Um, and he was able to do it so brilliantly um, that, you know, it's uh, I, I, I hopefully I, I, I'm hopeful that if he runs, that that will be um, something that he'll be able to talk about even more um, yeah. because I, and I think that he'll be able to talk about a lot of issues, too, that don't get any airtime or any coverage. Um, and, you know, because he does have kind of um, a bigger name and a platform, I think he'll be able to get a lot more attention on some of those things. Yeah. And to kind of speak to Libertarian Party strategy, um, you, you had said that you also agree that we wouldn't be able to win and everything. Um, I, I think kind of what what the idea is, is to market libertarianism and and market this anti-war um, sentiment to people at the local level and see if they can make any changes locally. So, for instance, the Libertarian Party is is pursuing um, the Defend the Guard legislation in the state here. And uh, we have a few legislators who are very interested in it. It's just a question of the constitutionality of it and, and getting support from people. And that, that's kind of the question right right now. But what this legislation would do is essentially tell the national government um, and the president that the state of Montana will not support will not support and will not send um, our National Guard unless Congress declares war. So it would essentially just be taking back the National Guard um, and, and the authority and giving it to the governor until uh, they, they fulfill the Constitution. Um, so that's just an example of, of something we might do with with a national campaign. So if, if Dave were to run or someone else were to run, um, we, the goal wouldn't necessarily be to win. It would be to direct people at the local level and, and try to make changes like that, because uh, libertarians are in favor of, of localism and decentralizing power. And I, I think the last couple of years have really um, shown people that, that that needs to be done with like what states like Florida and states like Montana have done to kind of reject um, this this covid policy at the national yes. level. I mean, Montana looks nothing like New York and it hasn't looked anything like New York for like a year or longer than a year. Like we locked, we locked down for a week. And I remember there was a moment where I was like, can I really like not go to the store? And then <laughs> we, we leave and then every, everyone's out like Walmart's full of people. And it's, it's like, yeah, no, Montanans aren't listening to this. And um, I, I think that it's actually it's really good that we don't have one um, point of failure. If if there was one policy that was just, uh, you know, a blanket policy across all 50 states, it, it would absolutely be a disaster. And the fact that the states have the, the the power really to ignore that, I think, is really good in the long term for um, the the I guess the empire and and the country really i think i think the the states will be able to uh live longer than the empire will be if if this um policy is pursued and i and i think you you would mention before the break um that you don't know how we will come to terms with uh just being so divided and all of this i think that the economic situation and the fact that we have overextended ourselves will really make us have to i mean we uh you know we just hit record inflation numbers I think it was 8.5% year over year um, in the CPI. And the CPI is a manipulated number. Like if, if you look at rent um, and the percent that rent has increased, it's much higher. The way that they they weigh certain goods in the CPI is, is kind of 
very arbitrary and it doesn't really make sh- make sense why they do it. Like they don't even calculate um, rent. They have like this thing called uh, homeowner equivalent rent. I, and I, I somewhat understand what that means, but it's, it's all to say that it's not an actual representation. And if you look at like the real percent change in like beef, if you look at the real percent change in uh, real estate and everything like this, I think, I think that what, what we're seeing is really the effects of the last, um, you know, few decades of foreign policy. And, you know, we can't afford overextending ourselves in, in these foreign countries with the tax base that we have. Like at this point, I don't even know why we're paying taxes because the federal reserve just prints up all of this money through QE yeah. and hands it out to, uh, all of these companies in the stock market and, and um, I mean, they're essentially like they've admitted that they're essentially handing money to people in the stock market and, and BlackRock. They they signed a contract with BlackRock so that BlackRock could do it, too. Um, and, and that controversy is interesting as BlackRock, I think, is one of the shareholders of Twitter. So there's kind of this. Uh, of course. <laughs> yeah, it has this conflict with Elon right now. Um, but, yeah, I think we will be forced to come to terms with it, terms with it. I think that. Um, eventually we will be seeing protests in the streets again. I think that there will have to be Occupy movements. I know there, there's a, uh, there's a local company that just, um, is trying to union unionize because there there's fear over, uh, wages. And I mean, like real wages have decreased significantly compared to the increase of prices. I, I don't have the figures right now, but, uh, everyone knows it. And, and I think the federal reserve just announced like a couple days ago that, uh, corporate profits are up 25%, but like, uh, prices are rising for the consumers. Like, I think everyone can kind of recognize what happened in 2020 and, yeah. and the massive, uh, distribution of wealth. Um, and, and I think that eventually we will have to wake up to it. And I, I hate, I don't want there to be massive, I, I, I kind of hope for unrest, but I really don't want like violence or anything like that. But I, but I fear that because of how irresponsible our federal government has been in overextending themselves. And I mean, we have a massive military budget and it's, yes. I think we will have to come to terms with it. Like Scott has, I'm sure he's talked about this with you that the, the policy in Afghanistan was Osama bin Laden, attempting to replicate our policy against the Soviet Union. Um, when, when we tried to get them in a quagmire in Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden learned from that and, and we bankrupted the Soviet Union and, and Reagan claimed that he had bankrupt, bankrupted the Soviet Union. Every conservative knows this, that, you know, he told Gorbachev to tear down the wall. Well, the, the pretext of that is, is the, the quagmire and, and the, the war, um, in Afghanistan between the Soviets and, and the Mujahideen that, that we had supported and, and backed from, uh, 1979 and, and Carter. And essentially we, we fell into the same trap and, and we've done it in more than just one country. I, you know, it started out with me learning about Afghanistan through the Moab that, that, uh, we talked about earlier. Um, but I, I learned shortly after about, the conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq and then in Syria and in Yemen and um, Somalia. And it's like, no one really is aware that we are doing these things. Um, I think the average person, like you said, they're paying attention to uh, they, they just have work. They have a family to take care of. And 
Uh, I don't think they have the time, but I think when, when they'll be aware of what's going on is when they'll, they'll really feel it when they're at the grocery store, when they're filling up, um, Biden announced that, you know, because of the sanction policy, we might have food shortages, which is questionable because then it makes you you wonder if these sanctions are even worth it. If if the Americans are going to starve here, um, right. I, I tend to think that it's more than just the sanctions that are going to cause the food shortages. I think it's uh, Federal Reserve policy. But yeah, I, I to answer that question that you you had mentioned before the break, I really do think that um we will have to come to terms with it economically. Yes. And I think that you're absolutely right. And what's unfortunate is most people do, are um, incapable of care, caring about something unless it directly impacts them. And that's, yep. I mean, no fault. It's just human nature. I think it's really difficult for people to, uh, you know, be able to empathize with something that isn't impacting them. And people are very busy and it is really hard to find information right now. Um, it always has been, but in particular right now, um, you know, with all the algorithms and all of the censorship and all of that stuff, it's really difficult to genuinely genuinely educate yourself about what's really happening in this country and around the world. Um, I mean, if you just look at Ukraine, for example, if you even mention anything about Ukraine that isn't pro-Ukraine and absolutely anti-Putin, you could potentially lose your platform. You will be, uh, uh, you know, you could get demonetized, you could get deboosted, you could be shadow banned, all of those things. Um, and that's the case. Uh, that's, that's just for that. I mean, it, that really happens all the time. And so actually educating yourself about what's happening uh, and what, you know, we need to do in order to combat the things that are going to be going down. Uh, it's really hard and people just don't have the time. They do not have the time. But I do think you're right. There's going to there's going to be a straw that breaks the camel's back um, and it's going to come to a point where uh, I hope that you're right. I don't uh, I think that uh, a violent, uh, violent unrest would be unbelievably bad. Um, but I think that the, I don't know how we avoid it. And I think that the empire is preparing for that. I mean, they're taking COVID money and giving it to cops and they're giving cops even more mil weapons of the military. Um, I think that they're doing that for a reason. I think they're preparing for the potential of violent unrest um, and they want to make sure that they're protected. Um, so, I mean, it, it, this is the, it could really go bad for us. But I think that. Um, at some point, there is going to be something that this all breaks down um, because we can't continue this way. Like you just said, we're, we're going to give Joe Biden $813 billion for the military. $813 billion. What are we giving him $813 billion for? It's absurd. That's obscene. It makes no sense. Um, and it's, you know, it, it, it it, it's just mind it's mind blowing to me that this is something that, um, you know, people are just uh, seemingly OK with. And nobody's there's really been no protests about this. In fact, we have protests out there in favor of no fly zones. I'm amazed. <laughs> I can't believe that's a thing that's happening. But there we are. <laughs> it's crazy. But there we are. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I was out tabling. I was out tabling with a student group that I have on the campus here and, and, and we were asking people whether or not they supported war against Russia or whether or not they supported sanctions against Russia. Um, I guess the, the positive thing is that a lot of people don't really know what sanctions are. I, I guess that's maybe a negative because it, it's, that's the intended effect. Like it, yeah. it's, it's kind of like a, a euphemism to obscure really what it is. Um, but so the majority of course are against war cause they, they, uh, I mean, they don't want to be shipped over to Ukraine, but right. then they'd say that they're in favor of economic penalties or something like that. But every once in a while you would get one person who says that we need to 
assassinate Putin or that we need to um, get directly involved in Ukraine. Um, uh, We didn't ask a question about a a no fly zone because I don't I don't think people I don't think people understand what that means. (laughs) Like it would literally draw the United States into a direct conflict with Russia. Um, The fact that people didn't really understand what sanctions were was was enough to like for me to be like, well, we probably shouldn't ask that question because People, I don't think that they can see through those those euphemisms. But um, to talk about, uh, you had said you, you feared um, violent kind of revolution and, and unrest. I think that that's kind of why the Libertarian Party is trying to take this moment and gear things more locally. I think a more peaceful revolution would be uh, decentralized change. Um, yes. And I, I think it's Jeff Dice who has has called it like soft secession. You've seen people move from New York to Montana. You've seen people move from New York to Florida. And I think that the the constitutional way that you that allows you to kind of get around this is to ignore um, federal policies like when uh, the the CDC policy of, of the uh, OSHA mandate um, uh, came through Montana, just ignored it. And they actually made vaccine discrimination illegal. Um, and I think if we could do something like that, that, that would allow a state to take back its authority when it comes to the military, like the Defend the Guard legislation or um, the, the radical in me would love to see being that Montana is um, the treasure state and our motto is the Oro e Plata. <laughs> I, I think that the most radical policy I think would be to uh, repeal legal tender laws here and allow people to trade in cryptocurrencies or whatever tender they want and really secede from uh, the fiat system we have. And, and really I think what that will allow is people to jump ship early and, and um, kind of hedge themselves against what is coming and, and the collapse of the empire and the collapse of the dollar. It, you know, the ruble has, rebounded it's it's gained all of its losses i think it's at a historical high and and everyone thought that our sanctions would absolutely destroy them but they've now tied their ruble to gold it seems and um i i think that we really have shot ourselves in the foot and yes i think that (laughs) americans really need to um become economically aware so that they can safeguard themselves Yes, I want to 100% agree with that for sure. Um, okay, so we only have a couple minutes left. I want to make sure you have time to tell everybody where they can find you so they can follow you in your work. So uh, let everybody know where they can uh, keep track of you. Yeah, so you can find my YouTube channel at Liam McCollum. Um, you can also find the Liam McCollum show on Spotify, Apple Music, and SoundCloud. I'm also on Odyssey, and every, everyone should check out Odyssey because they're a great decentralized platform. Um, and, and I've been supporting them for a while now. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at M Liam McCollum. And yeah, that's about it. If you're, if you're interested in joining the Mises caucus or, uh, the libertarian party, um, please look them up in your browser and sign up. It's, it's pretty easy to sign up at the Mises caucus. Um, there's just a sign up sheet as soon as you enter their website and, and do the same for the libertarian party. I think that it would be really great if you guys got involved. 
Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I always appreciate these conversations. Um, you know, it's always really enlightening. And uh, uh, so I would love to have you back on uh, so that we can continue this conversation. Um, you know, it's uh, we have to have I think that coming together, you know, like this across ideological uh, differences, I think is always a good thing. So look, we were able to have a grown up conversation, even though we disagree <laughs> on things, Liam, it can happen. Um, OK, so thanks, everybody, for tuning in today. I really appreciate it. I'll be back on Monday at 3 p.m. But hang tight for more here on TV. TNT Radio.